Welcome back, everyone, to uh, our look back at the footballing years in the Republic of Ireland from 2000 to 2009. Uh, with the end of Mick McCarthy's reign after a, a loss to Switzerland in a, in a very angry Lansdowne Road uh, and a fairly forgettable draw against Greece, the, the job of uh, international soccer manager was still hadn't been filled. And there was a few candidates uh, had been mentioned, uh, among them Peter Reid, Brian Robson and uh, Philip Trusier. But I think that's the, the, the clear favourite from the beginning um, was the uh, underage manager, Brian Kerr. Now, Brian Kerr had been well known to, um, to I think, in football circles, but he hadn't really broken into like the, the mainstream consciousness, the, the man in the street, if you like. So uh, I'm joined now by by Mark Kennedy from Hawkeye Psychic and by Philip O'Connor, uh, our man in Stockholm, to discuss the the second uh, manager uh, of the 2000 to 2009 decade, Brian Kerr. Uh, welcome, lads. Thanks very much indeed, Joe. Lovely to be here. Uh, so, like I said, uh, Brian probably wasn't too well known outside of football circles in uh, in Ireland at the time. Uh, the team that had won the underage sides that had blossomed under his reign that had gone on to win uh, uh, European Championship gold um, and um, was probably pushed the, the players more than the, the manager, I think, into the public consciousness. Uh, but he had actually started to become well known as a studio analyst at this time. Um, you know, uh, RTE's uh, Soccer Saturday uh, program kind of brought him into the public consciousness, as I say. And what struck me about him was his preparedness. You know, uh, some random you know academy youth player would come on for a five-minute cameo, and he knew everything about him. You know, where he had, uh, where he had grown up, where he had. Uh, where he developed as a player, and I, and I think it was that attention to detail that really, uh, really helped uh, strengthen his case for uh, for the, the 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 senior job. One of the the Chris the lasting criticisms against Mick McCarthy had been that the team hadn't prepared um, as much as club sides at the side at the time were doing, and obviously this kept bringing things back to to Roy Keane, to Alex Ferguson, and to to Manchester United. So, uh, Mark, if we can start with you. Um, when, when Kerr was eventually given the job in January 2003, did you think he was the right man for the job? Uh, I, I would have thought so, just given his huge coaching records with Republic. I mean, as you said yourself, his scouting network, particularly of the underage academy uh, guys, was second to none. I mean, you know, the likes of Richie Dunn, John O'Shea, Robbie Keane, Damien Duff. Stephen Elliott, guys like that, it all come through kind of his youth coaching um, um, under Republic of Ireland. Like some of the names that were banded around were, you know, the Peter Reeds, Brian Robinson, no disrespect. And then poor old Philip Trussier. Remember, um, he only found out that he didn't get the job by some punter bringing him up just to commiserate with him, um, apparently. Uh, that was real kind of embarrassing. 101 stuff from the FAI again. But again, the, from the candidates that were being. Uh, you know, we were kind of looking for a little bit of a new freshness, a bit, a bit more of maybe an attacking creativity edge that we thought that Brian Kerr might bring, given his performance was the under 16s right up until the under 20. So, I suppose, Joel, from my perspective, I thought it was a popular choice, really, by all accounts. Yeah, and uh, here too, um, that's that was my my take on it. That he, like, when his name was first linked with the job, I was thinking maybe, maybe not. Um, 
but as as I say, as his his profile increased, and I think a lot more of the players came out to support him. I you know I was uh, I was brought around to him, and and, and um, even up, up up until he was officially announced, uh, I thought he was the the clear favourite. Uh, Phil, I mean, what do you remember of uh, of the, the kind of build up to the announcement itself, and you know when Kerr was finally unfi- officially unveiled. What was your reaction to it? I mean, I was delighted when he got the job, Joe, because if we if we look at the Irish football family that we've heard so much about from John Delaney in his time there, the Irish football family is not a happy family. It's not the Waltons. There's been always been an awful lot of uh, aggro between various different factions, if it's you know the schoolboy leagues or the Leinster Senior League or whoever, and everybody's always been pulling in sort of different directions. And the major, the first major departure from that was when Jack Charlton got the job originally back in the mid-1980s, and they decided they were going to try a totally different tack and from that point on Jack was successful but nobody liked the football that he played and from that point on they struggled to find the alchemist the guy who could play football the way the Irish football family wanted it to be played but also be successful now Mick McCarthy had done some of that in 2000, 2001, 2002 some of the games that Ireland played at the 2002 World Cup technically and tactically were probably better than anything we'd ever played at the finals of a major tournament but to get Brian in who was so rooted in Inchicore, in Pats, in League of Ireland football, in knowing all these lads in South Dublin and Talla, all the up-and-comers. That was an absolutely brilliant thing for all sides of the football family. The only side of the football family that was left out was the, the English-Irish contingent. The players who were born to parents abroad. You know, my own kids at this stage could probably be counted among them, right? So he wouldn't have had that connection to them because he didn't really play the game at any very high level himself. They weren't sure of who he was. But for the rest of the nation as a whole and for the people who take teams out every Saturday morning and every Wednesday evening, they were delighted with it. And I was delighted with it as well because if you looked at how his under-16, under-18 teams, when you looked at how they played, they were much more positive uh, than what we'd seen, certainly under Jack Jesus. You couldn't watch the football. You enjoyed the excitement, but the, the football was shameful at times, you know. So it really was. We wanted to get back to that Johnny Giles, late 40s, early 50s street football or Eamon Dunphy, that kind of thing. But we also wanted the results. And Brian at the time seemed to be the man who could get that because he was able to take uh, underage teams with Richie Sadler, Roy, uh, Robbie Keane, Damon Duffy. He was able to bring, uh, Liam George was there as well. He was able to bring those lads to tournaments and get results out of them. He was able to put them all together uh, in to a functioning unit. He was able to get them to perform tactically and that kind of thing. So it was really, really good at the time. I mean, I remember an awful lot of positivity when he did get the job. Yeah, uh, I, I have to say, I remember the press conference when he was when he was brought out and announced as manager. And I genuinely don't think I've ever seen any manager at any level, at international, at club level, uh, given the welcome that he got from the assembled press corps. You know, it was it was seen as a a victory for the real football fans of Ireland, you know, all the way down to, you know, DDSL and all the way up to, to senior international management. Um, and that was the feeling at the time that, uh, you know, that he would be able to blend, you know, the, the, the youth players, the players that he had brought through through the youth teams uh, to the existing experienced players in the senior team. Um, and that's the, the, the lack of preparedness, I think, was uh, was maybe what cost Mick McCarthy his job, or one of the things that kept coming up, 
you know, when we when we maybe we didn't perform as well. It was, you know, why didn't we? Why wasn't player X man, uh, man marked? You know, why didn't we prepare for this contingency? And Brian Kerr had a reputation as that kind for that level of preparation. So his first game, uh, oh, it was a friendly against Scotland in Scotland, um, and they were dispatched fairly easily two nil, um, and. I remember texting my brother after thinking that, you know, this was a, a very controlled brand of football that we hadn't played before that, you know, the scoreline possibly even flattered uh, Scotland a little bit, that it could have been three or four. Um, and even the, the goals themselves had kind of had had, a, a, you know, a blend of the kind of possession based, slow, methodical build up with a fine finish, you know, and then also you know, just across into the box and a header from the striker. You know, Kevin Kilbans will always will go down in history as having scored the first goal of of uh, Brian Kerr's reign, and Clinton Marston followed it up as I say with a with a header. Um, so, you know, that was the the first game out of the way, a friendly, um, and then suddenly we're we're look, facing into the the real the real meat of international management uh, qualification. Qualifiers, uh, too, on paper, maybe not too difficult, but given the the, the way the qualifiers had, got, had opened for us, you know, two losses against the two uh, other top seeds in the group, we really needed to get um, at least one win in our two games away to, to Georgia uh, and Albania. Um, so, Mark, uh, how did you feel about the performance and the friendly and what did it, you know, what did it... Uh, the two games, the two qualifiers uh, have to look forward to. Yeah, it was real optimism after that Scottish performance. Anyway, you know, it was very controlled. Just a, you know, the sheer kind of approach, passing it from the back. You know, people, you know, players moving off the ball, giving giving the the player with the ball options, not not seen for a while. Really, it was a, it was a nice performance. But then you caught the whole blood and trust of a qualification campaign and. No better place to be kind of getting back on a reality check than going to Tbilisi first day out, like against Georgia. And well, by the memory of that, it was such a oh, it was just a topsy turvy game from start to finish. I mean, you know, all I remember really was that Gary Doherty goal right at the end, you know, really kind of secured three points. It was a real feisty affair, pretty physical, an awful lot of tackles flying in. Um, and as well as I think there was a bit of hostility towards the Irish players as well from the home crowd, if I remember rightly, there as well on the final whistle. The, the crowd were a little bit baying for blood after that late Gary Doherty winner. But again, all looked good in terms of that. You know, it was a good start for Brian Kerr. Uh, but then, then to Tirana, and again, it, it's a tough road trip. You know, even back in those days, it would have been a, a, a real tough road trip. And again, there wasn't. It was a game of precious few chances, really. And, you know, nil all draw. So four points out of two. But as you said yourself, Joe, you know, we had France and Switzerland coming um, on the horizons as well. So maybe it was an opportunity lost there. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think, you know, the Georgia, you know, historically up to that point, we had always we'd always beaten Georgia and we would continue to do so uh, for quite some time. But we never really, we never got them, never blew them away. It was always one, a one nil or, you know, a 2-1. It was always a scrappy affair, but you know, maybe the professionalism uh, of the Irish players kind of won through. So, Phil, you know, if I can ask you about about just about the two qualifiers rather than just the Scotland game, um, did you think that did you or could you see any of the changes that 
uh, Kerr had has had been you know encouraged to bring into the side at that stage already, even though you know three games into his his uh, international stewardship. I think you could see early on like what Kerr was trying to do. You could see the patterns that they were trying to play, and it was very sort of. The thing about it was that you know it worked to a point, and you know it's like a lot of these things. It worked until it didn't work, and then the plan B was the problem because at the beginning of any reign, you have two things: you have the positivity that followed Kerr's appointment, and everybody wanted him to do well. The players were trying to impress him, and that kind of thing, and that that's like money in the bank for a coach to begin with. So in the beginning, then the first thing you want to get sorted out is defensive set pieces, and you want to get a basic way of playing the game. But the problem for Ireland and the problem for every international team in that situation is that those two. Basic things aren't really enough. So it's the teams that have continuity over 5, 10, 15 years, the way the Dutch, the Germans have it. Um, the Brazilians have the same. Well, lately they haven't had it as much as what they did. But there was a red thread going through the Brazilian teams from probably 1970 until the late 1980s in terms of the way they played the game. And Kerr was trying to sort of implement that at the time. So you could see that that, that, you know, that, that was happening there. But, you know, again, away to Albania was just one of those annoying games where it just didn't seem to be, you know, OK, we're holding on to the ball for the sake of it. We're not really threatening, not really creating chances, not worrying them. And it struck me at the time that I think Brian's background is as a, as a scientist right so he works as a microbiologist that's uh, that's the so the job that he had was he was yeah. doing working at Pat's that but it was a sort of a scientific sort of a thing right so it was played to the numbers I think it was exactly I think it was Mark that said it earlier in this conversation you know you want one win you want four points in those two away games and it seems to me to be you know no coincidence that that's exactly what they got you know and you can be absolutely you can be very happy they're two really tough away games this is not like you know the late 1980s the early 1990s when these were poor countries with poor players and poor pitches and stadiums these are good technical solid players who are well fit enough for the for the task you know the Georgians had a couple of players in the Premier League uh, and knocking around in the better leagues in Europe in, in Holland and in Germany and that you know so it was just a little bit frustrating but then again you have to give these things time but in international football that's the only thing that you don't have Exactly, yeah. I mean, Georgia were still uh, calling on the likes of Georgi Kinkladze, um, possibly coming to the, to the end of his career at that stage, but still the kind of player that could make a difference. And I think, you know, the kind of player that we, we kind of struggled against. Um, and then just just to finish on the, the Albania game, you know, uh, Robbie Keane played in that match. Um, despite having attended his father's funeral, um, I think only a few days earlier. So we'll, we'll, we'll never really know you know, where, where his head was at that time. And I think it kind of speaks to his character that he did go and he did play. So with the three away games in a row away from home, uh, Brian Kerr was finally able to to bring his team back to his city. Um, and we played Norway in a friendly, a 1-0 win where uh, Damien Duff scored a, a quite wonderful goal. And um, if I, just to, to let you in on something, that was my first uh, Ireland home game Um I was supposed to watch this in a pub with a friend, but he sent me a message that he couldn't make it. So I just decided to go down and chance my arm to get a ticket and I managed to pick up a spare outside the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I think there was, uh, you know, there was you could feel the positivity uh, in the in the in the stadium. And, you know, compared to what the, the previous home game, you know, the, the loss to Switzerland under Mick McCarthy in his final game, whether it was just a, a venomous atmosphere. Um, it was, you know, a, a world apart, and the, you know, the, the positivity I think was back in the stands. The the fans were behind the team; they were behind the manager, and we were looking forward to a successful end to qualification. 
Um, so after after the win against uh, Norway, we had the return games against Albania and Georgia, and they were you know uh, in that June they were quite handily dispatched two one and uh, and two nil. Well, the Albania game maybe not so much. You know it was a, a very late a very late winner. And uh, if I remember correctly, there was some controversy uh, from the, the 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 fans, the Albanian fans, because uh, the their team had basically spent the whole game diving, and uh, the Ireland players refused to to give the ball back when uh, they put it out for a throw, and that's that's actually what led to the to the last minute uh, last minute winner, which was a, an own goal. So, Mark, now with the those. With those home games behind us, with uh, you know a bit of momentum building up, where we're going into the the last the the last two games of those qualifiers, and you know we're facing back into we're facing the two other top seeds in the group. Did you think that we had a chance of qualifying? Oh, very much so. Um, particularly after the Georgian performance. I mean, that was a very workmanlike performance and. During that start of the rain, Damien Duff seemed to be our focal point, particularly from a midfield attacking creativity perspective. I think he was out for the game, wasn't he, against Georgia um, at home. Uh, but, I mean, midfield really was like very compact. Put the Georgian midfield under massive pressure from the get-go. Never got into a tempo of Georgian. We won pretty com- comfortably, really, and I think the crowd was really on Brian Kerr's side at that stage. I mean, 10 points out of 12, I mean, I don't think he could have wished for more from Republic of Ireland perspective. But again, um, an awful lot of things uh, needed to happen first going forward. But again, it was a good start, I thought. Yeah. I think it's also the case as well, Joe, that with those four games, they're four banana skin games, right? Yeah. Because you're talking about teams that essentially, if you looked at the rankings, Albania and Georgia were the underdogs in those situations. They've nothing to lose. They've good sort of technical players. The amount of late winners, you know, when you concede early goals, it's usually a problem with concentration in the team. When you score late goals, it's always to do with strength and stamina. You're just, you're still able to run that little bit more. And I know the winner against uh, Albania, if I remember rightly, wasn't that an own goal that you just yeah. mentioned? there and they're the kind of things that's your reward for running hard for 90 plus minutes you know so they deserve that and 10 points out of 12 that was pretty magnificent you know when you think of where you know the end of Mick McCarthy's reign or or that part of Mick McCarthy's reign if you like it's always sad to see you know a character like Mick McCarthy given so much become so unpopular I always hate those two games at the end, you know, at Lansdale Road and everybody's going, look at, get out of there, you've done your thing now, you know, it's, and I don't think people enjoy it either, you know, like seeing a hero like Mick who'd done so much in the jersey and then on the bench and brought us to a World Cup and all that kind of thing, nobody enjoys that, so that surge then, to see that level of commitment from the players and, and the the strength and the stamina that brought you to 10 points out of 12 games, I mean, that was a really sort of positive start to it, but unfortunately, in getting rid of the banana skins, it, it wasn't going to get any easier from there. No, and you know the the we all knew the the two big games were coming um, at the at the at the resumption of the qualifiers in in the autumn, and you know the we had a uh, we had a friendly in August to build up to it when international August international friendlies were still a thing, um, and you know we beat Australia two one at home, and I think one thing that was fairly notable about the game was that we actually went. One nil down in that game to a strong Australia side and uh, went down in the, the the second half. It was nil nil at half time, but the we came back to win two one with two goals in the last fifteen minutes from John O'Shea and Clinton Morrison. And I think this was something else maybe that we hadn't seen uh, under 
with under Mick McCarthy, you know, that the ability to adapt, you know, when something's not going right, you know, if you go one nil down at home, kind of felt maybe we're not going to get a result here. We probably won't get a win. And to turn around, you know, a team that had like had Viduka, uh, you know, Danny Tiada was a, a Premier League regular, Mark Schwarzer, highly, highly regarded still um, as, as a Premier League keeper. And, you know, to, you know, to, to get a win, from uh, from uh, a losing position was uh, something another kind of step along the way another you know building building the momentum and showing what we could what we could do under the, with these players under this manager and then we came to the the, the Russia game and it was it just I, I don't know what happened on the day uh, we went one 0 up uh, Damien Duff got a possibly a, a lucky goal it was it was a deflection um, and. But we never seem to take take charge of that game. We never seem to 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 believe that we were going to win. And even at one 0 up, we weren't comfortable and conceded just before half time. And second half, I just remember standing on the on the, the north the north terrace and just thinking, we're not going to get a win here. Um, and then we needed, I think we needed one win from the two games, you know, Russia and Switzerland, um, to be guaranteed a second spot. And the point that we got in that game meant that we were going to to switch in the, in the last game, possibly need, needing a win to to get out of the group to, to get a playoff. And I wasn't sure if we were going to get it. So, Mark, I mean, did you think that we could get that win in that last qualifier against Switzerland? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, before the Switzerland game, I was kind of hoping that we didn't have to hinge on that result. Mm-hmm. It's just our record against Switzerland, and uh, if you've heard me in these podcasts, I just I have a recurring nightmare about Swiss football internationally. I mean, they uh, just bore me to sleep, to be perfectly honest. And they just uh, we just don't have a good record with Switzerland, so I was very apprehensive going into it. Um, you know that Russian game as well. I mean, it it kind of started off pretty well. I thought the opening opening twenty thirty minutes. I mean, Duff got the goal, but you know. Russia just closed ranks as soon as they got the equaliser. They just literally wanted to get the point and uh, move on. And we weren't just able to break them down at all, were we? Except for Damien Duff. But that Switzerland game away, I was just very apprehensive, just given the performance against Russia, really. I think that Russia performance sort of showed how reliant, like Ireland used to go to Damien Duff all the time and I've seen this, actually the current Swedish team was quite like that about a year, year and a half ago they have a guy on the wing, on the left wing called Emil Forsberg and they just gave him the ball all the time and you know, when you're doing that when you're so reliant on one player to create because you can't really be reliant on a centre forward in the same way because he can't play the ball in for himself you know, you have unique players like Cristiano Ronaldo, like Messi, like uh, the way Ronaldinho used to be and they can both create and finish by themselves so we're not talking about them they're the unicorns here but a Robbie Keane or a Clinton Morrison they're always dependent on somebody giving them the service and then they'll score the goals but when the Russians realise that okay the serious serious threat here is going to be Damien Duff we need to stop him get like not stop him with the ball we need to stop him getting on the ball at all and once they were able to do that there was very, very little that Ireland had. You know, again, you talk about a plan B there. There just wasn't the, the sort of attacking quality that Duff could offer anywhere else on the field to unlock them. 
And when that happens, you know, I mean, I think the Romanians had it with Hadji through much of his career as well. If you could manage to take him out of the game, as Ireland did in 1990, I think it was, that was it. You weren't going to see him. But if you played at Denmark at that time, they had players all over the field. You had the two Laudrup's, you had Fleming Post, you had all sorts of players who could open up a team. And that's really what we lacked, was just that extra sort of a playmaker. If you'd been able to go back 10 years and get John Sheridan, who played in the midfield in USA, USA 94, and, you know, anybody who's ever listened to me talk about Irish football knows how much I loved his ability to pass the ball. But a player like that, plus a duff, and you would have been in business there. But we just didn't have that quality. Yeah, and the, another thing that about the, the Russia game was that they knew they had two, uh, unlike ourselves, they had two qualifiers yet to come. They were playing the, the Swiss at home, followed by... Uh, 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 Georgia at home, two very, very winnable games uh, uh, in Moscow, whereas we just had that one qualifier remaining uh, to Switzerland. So, you know, and so Switzerland in a similar position, you know, having two games, uh, one on that tough away game in Moscow, but then a very winnable game at home to, from from their point of view anyway, uh, against Ireland in, in, in Basel. And so it that's how it came to pass, really. Uh, Russia ran over Switzerland 4-1 and then beat uh, Georgia 3-1 in their last two qualifiers. And Switzerland beat ourselves uh, 2-0 uh, in the last qualifier. Um, and when we really, we needed a win, uh, you know, we needed a win to, to get out of the group. And it, again, uh, I I felt in that game that maybe there was a, you know, Brian Kerr possibly made his, his first real mistake as a as a as a senior uh, international manager um Kenny Cunningham had been had been appointed captain uh, under Mick McCarthy at the beginning of the qualifiers and Kerr had continued that uh, when he took over but unfortunately got booked in the home game against Russia so had to miss the the Swiss qualifier and Kerr's reaction to this was to move uh, John O'Shea, who had been uh, playing at left full into centre half, and bring in uh, Ian, Ian Hart as an orthodox left full. And to me, that was two changes that he did, where he only really needed to make one, which where he could have brought in, say, Andy O'Brien to play alongside Gary Breen, or you know. And I think that's the, the changes in defence maybe is what cost us because we 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 suddenly we were playing an unfamiliar uh two two unfamiliar players in that back four and we and we were missing Kenny Cunningham's leadership uh in defense and you know again you know, it was 2-0 to Switzerland but i kind of feel like it could have been easily uh 3 or 4 it was a horrible night it was a horrible night for football and it really you know it was the it, it meant we weren't going to be going to a second successive tournament. So, so Philip, like, I mean, after the game, after the results, did you think that, uh, did you still think that Brian Kerr was the right man for the job? Yeah, I think the suspicion started to set in because, again, we saw the more sort of conservative, mathematical side of the way he thinks about the game at that point. You know, so you were going away. Like, away games are always more difficult, and that's really where you see how brave a manager is. So what does he try to do away from home? And that really was a case of fortune may have favoured the brave that night, but he went with a player like Ian Hart. Ian Hart in 2003, when that game was played, was a very, very experienced player in terms of club football, in terms of Champions League, 
league in terms of international football. So bringing him in was kind of, in one way, it was a no-brainer. But like you say, making two changes there, you know, what would have been the positive attacking option to go in there? You mentioned Andy O'Brien, and he was a player I almost forgot, but an extremely solid centre-half, you know. And with teams like Switzerland, Switzerland were very tough. They were very solid. And there's only way to, to me, there was only two ways to beat that Swiss team and pretty much only two ways to ever beat any Swiss team. And one is that you just have to absolutely battle them from the off or you have to be faster than them. Now, we have never been blessed with extremely quick players. You know, Duff at the beginning of his career was quite quick, relatively quick, but we've never had a real speed merchant. I can't think of one going back over the years. Wesley Hulham was never known for his speed. You know, Andy Reid wouldn't have been known for that. Robbie Keane was, again, at the beginning of his career, but we weren't able to just, you know, get Get a team facing its own goal and run at them, run at them, run at them the whole time, you know. So at that stage, when you see somebody hedging their bets in a really important game away from home, I hate this idea of, oh, you know, if we just play it tight and we can nick it in a set piece, that to me is just, you know, it's capitulation really. And I kind of got the feeling that night that, you know, it was, oh, you know, let's let's go there and not lose rather than let's go there and win the game. I would have much rather see uh, the Brian Kerr who played tournament play with the under-16s and the under-18s threw a bit of caution to the wind to see if we could qualify in style and go out and win the game because we still managed to lose even with that sort of slightly more conservative mindset yeah and the thing was we kind of knew that a draw wouldn't be good enough we had to go for that win because as i said russia you know, russia were playing you know georgia at home where they were expected to win um and they were expected they would expect to get the, the three points um and we really did need to get that three points in in basel that night and it just didn't happen i think that the kind of the, the attitude at the time, the reaction was that, well, you know, he started on the back foot and we still almost got there. Maybe if he had been in charge for the first two games, we might have had a better chance of qualifying. Um, so, Mark, now with the, the qualifiers over, um, you know, there's always a, a, a turnaround in terms of uh, in terms of personnel players. You know, it's a natural end of a, a player's international career. Um, did you think that... Did you think that we could bring that with the players that were kind of coming to their as I said, their their, their international career? Um, was there quality coming through at that time to replace them? And then, you know, we could push on for the, the World Cup in, in Germany. Yeah, again, it was a disappointing end. Um, but again, there, there was quite a few kind of promising up and coming guys like Clinton Morrison had been putting up his hand for selection. Uh, quite a bit during the latter end of that campaign. I know Gary Doherty got a few goals and whatever, but Clinton for me was one of the main men in terms of being up front. At least he gave a bit of a dimension in terms of his pace, his power. Um, Andy Reid as well in midfield as well would have been kind of, um, you know, I would have liked Andy Reid as a player, very creative, you know, kind of in that top Brian Kerr mindset. Um, so we did have kind of players coming through. I mean, and there was kind of a basis there for likes of, you know, John O'Shea's and people like that to kind of come in and you know, grab it by the scruff of the neck. So yeah. I, I was optimistic going into the 2006 World Cup campaign, to be perf- perfectly honest, uh, Joe. I mean, Kerr had his campaign to kind of see what international football management was all about. And my hope was that he would have learned some of the, the mistakes uh, from the previous campaign. Yeah, and I think that was the, the, the prevailing opinion that, you know, it's that, he had taken over from Mick McCarthy. He didn't have a lot of time to prepare for the qualifiers. It was very much, you know, the the, the player personnel hadn't changed that much, but you know, it, the 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 preparation had become uh, very much evident, even in the, the short time that he had been in charge. So, 
the before the the qualifiers for the the World Cup in two thousand and six in Germany started, like we had three fairly high profile friendlies announced uh, for the the first half of the year. We we're going to be playing uh, Brazil, Czech Republic, and Romania at home. Um, and again, you know, this was this was I think perhaps cynically this was designed to get the 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 crowd back into Lansdowne Road to get the the, the the fans back behind the team, you know, people even people who wouldn't be football fans would come and see Brazil, you know, the the, you know, the famous yellow jerseys, um, and that was the, the, I think the plan was that that would carry on into the into the qualifiers in the second half of the year. So, so you know, the the games themselves went pretty well. We got a credible nil nil draw against Brazil, and I think a, a lot of people felt that this was a but it wasn't a bad result, you know. Wins against Brazil are are rare enough, um, and I think possibly historically that what that game might be best remembered for is that it's actually Jason McIntyre's uh, last last international cap. Um, this was followed up by a two one win against the Czech Republic, and you know this was again this was it, again it felt like this was a, a game that we possibly wouldn't have won under under previous management. You know this was a really good. Uh, Czech side, you know, we were they were sixth in the world, um, and you know we, but we controlled that game pretty much from the start. You know, we I know again it was it was a last minute winner, um, but you know we were one and up for a very long time. Barish got an equaliser, but we were still pushing for that winner. You know, Roy Delap had a, a goal this uh, disallowed because he threw it straight in from a throw in, which I didn't know doesn't count. Um, and we finally and you know Robbie Kane. Uh, scored a scored a winner right at the end. So, as well as that, at the time, the rumor started circulating that Roy Keane was coming back. That he had gotten positive uh, feedback from John O'Shea about the the preparation around the team now, and talks were might take place with Brian Kerr about you know uh, returning. So, Phil, how did you feel when it was finally announced that you know uh, the home game against Romania in May? Uh, which was the possibly the the least uh, the maybe I don't want to say the least attractive, but maybe not. They, obviously, they're not as big as as Brazil or Czech Republic was going to be Roy Keane's combat match. I think that was just one of those moments that everybody had been waiting for for years. You know, ever since Saipan, people wanted to see Roy Keane come back. I still look back on what happened in 2002 as the greatest what if, the greatest sliding doors moment in Irish football history. Because, you know, there's people listening to this podcast who won't remember just how dominant he was every week in the Premier League and the Champions League. And he was capable... There's many great players that play the game, right? But I've never seen Ronaldinho make another player better. I've seen him make things easier for other players. And you'll see that you know, around the place. But Roy Keane could make everybody better by sheer force of his will alone. Like, I've spoken to Jesper Blomqvist about him. And, you know, Blomqvist was afraid of his life to do anything wrong. But when Keane believed in you, then all of a sudden you grew. You know, you became bigger and taller and stronger and faster. And to have that in the Irish setup, because he was such a talismanic figure. And, you know, there's been a million podcasts about Saipan. I'm sure the one you, you guys did before Christmas will be added to the pile, you know. But to see him coming back and to see him having sort of worn the hair short and not saying, right, I'm coming back, that was hugely positive because when we looked at what we lacked in terms of the previous qualifying campaign, there's always the out that Kerr didn't have the first couple of games. So that was always a gimme. He was never going to be, you know, in that qualifying process, he could always say, oh, well, look at, you know, I, you know, I only took over a couple of games in, you know. He couldn't do it this time around, but this time around he had Roy Keane and he had 
I wouldn't say a more favourable draw, but I mean, the group that he got, you know, Switzerland, you would expect to beat Switzerland with Roy Keane in your team and the rest, you know, who was it, Israel, Cyprus and the Pharaohs, you know, you shouldn't have to worry too much about those lads. So bringing Roy Keane back at that point in time, I think everybody's ears pricked up and went, okay, you know, the next World Cup is going to be some crack and we might even get revenge for what happened in Saipan. Yeah, and I think the, the feeling was the time that we were finally closing the door in Saipan. Roy Keane had come back uh the, the the right man was in charge the, the the preparation was right you know this would come with the the stamp of approval from as i say from from alex ferguson from old trafford and qualification was as good as in the bag and i was at that game i was at the romania game and i remember uh you know i, I actually went in early uh to watch the teams warming up and he was there and he's taking part in the in the warm-up and the the, the team had been announced and was being called out and when his name like when every other player's name was called out, Che Gibbon, yay, the crowd would cheer, yay. Well, you know, it's Robbie Keane, yay. And then make, going down to the team, but when it came to Roy Keane, the reaction was was mixed. Mm. And I thought, I, was, I, I did kind of wonder, what's it going to be like when he walks out for kickoff? Now, I think one of the smart things that Brian Kerr did was he actually kept Kenny Cunningham as his captain, which meant that he would walk out first. But one thing I always remember about that game, Roy Keane walked out last, you know, and that's, you know, it's, I know like the, the player that walks out last isn't, isn't usually decided. Sometimes it's just the order that they walk out of the, the dressing room is, but when he walked out, the stadium lit up, like he got a, he got a welcome that I don't think I've ever heard since. I think the only thing that ever comes close, if you want just a comparison, when James McLean made his debut for Ireland, when he was brought on as a substitute, like, the stadium stood up and applauded him. And I think that's the only thing that comes close to what uh, uh, Roy Keane got in that game. Um, and again, you know, he, he, you could see him during the game. You know, he, he maybe wasn't as mobile as he had been. Maybe, you know, the, 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 the passing was a little bit, wasn't maybe not up to his standards, but he, had, he did have a good game. And Ireland won 1-0. And I think everybody left feeling, feeling good, feeling good about the qualifiers, feeling good about the, the team and about the setup. Um, uh, there was three. Excuse me. There was three more friendlies to play that year. We played uh, Nigeria and Jamaica in a, a, a small uh, tournament that had been organised in London. Um, and I think again, uh, Nigeria beat us three uh, nil in a game that's probably only really remembered. I think uh, for uh, for the, the the that it happened really, um, and then. The next game, the Jamaica game, is probably only best remembered, as I'm pretty sure, is that it's uh, Aidan McGeady's debut. And there had been talk that maybe he was going to de- defect to Scotland, but he came on, and at the time, a, a, a friendly was enough to tie it to the international side. Um, but then, you know, the, the last friendly then was the Dutch uh, in in Amsterdam, and they were uh, they were preparing for the 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 European Championships in Portugal and and we won one nil and Robbie Keane scored one of his best goals at international level um and again this just this was just building the momentum that that you know we are going to go this is the the team is ready like everything is is set up for our qualifiers in the second half of the year and next year so like Mark how did you feel about that how did you feel about Roy Keane coming back how did you feel about the 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 way that the 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 build-up to the qualifiers uh, had begun. 
Yeah, no, I mean, preparation had gone very well. I mean, Roy Keane News was, you know, I remember back in the day. Now, I was over in Boston at the time, and we won't, we won't rehash old wounds, but I mean, I was in Keane's side of the camp. So for him to come back into the international fold with the Republic of Ireland was just, yeah, it was fantastic news, really. You know, it gave us that added dimension in midfield. You know, he was world-class, Roy Keane, what he did week in, week out with Manchester United. And to have that leadership, that commanding presence in the middle of the park, it was just something that was really looking forward to. And it did really kind of bode very well for us. I mean, I think as Philip has kind of mentioned here, the, the group itself on paper looked pretty all right. And I mean, when you consider France and the nightmare European championships that they had, we were hoping maybe kind of leading into this that there might be kind of a little bit of withdrawals, maybe a bit of a hangover from the French on a few of the results early. Um, so I was very optimistic, Joe, um, to cut a long story short. Yeah, and I was as well. Um, so the, the qualifiers opened in in September with a, a home game against Cyprus and they were duly dispatched uh, 3-0 in the days when you know Cyprus didn't give us any trouble in qualifiers. Uh, and then... We returned to the, the scene of the crime. You know, it was less than twelve months since our last game uh, in Switzerland, and uh, we when they had denied us qualification. And I think it was it was probably the first time under Brian Carroll we could compare yeah, the impact that his management had had, or the the, the changes that he had been made over the course of the qualifiers. Um, or sorry, the change that he made at his reign in in that point in in that return game, if you like, to Switzerland. You know, we won it up very early with a goal from Clinton Morrison um, and finished it, you know, Switzerland equalised because, well, we always kind of struggle against Switzerland. But again, they, never, they didn't blow us away. Um, you know, a draw probably was the right result, but it was a, a point against uh, a group, and a team in the group that we felt we would have to get the better of to qualify. And now we knew that, that Switzerland had to come to Dublin to get a result. So, so Phil, like, what did you think uh, of the compare, or how would you compare the performance in you know in less than twelve months? Uh, we played Switzerland twice and been beaten two 0 and suddenly turned things around to get a one a one all result a one all draw, um, and it looked good. I think, I think, yeah, I think that was a huge improvement in the space of a year there, and you know a lot of that goes down to the fact that Ireland had a serious string of friendlies. Like, I mean, I don't know what was it, seven or eight friendlies maybe between the the Switzerland game that they lost two nil and then uh, the draw away in Basel. But it looked so much different because they looked so much more competent. They looked like they looked like a team that had played six or seven games and that they gotten to know one another. Listen, okay, this is what we want to do in attack. This is what we're going to do in defence. This is what we're going to do with set pieces. We have a Plan B, and they looked just much more like an all-round, like like a you know self-playing piano kind of thing. They were capable of doing things without having to sort of think about it, without having to look down at the ball and then look up to see was somebody making a run. So it became a lot more automatic, and that performance. It was like it lifted Ireland to the level that they should have been at and brought Switzerland back down to the level that they should have been at. Because, you know, that 2 0 performance sort of flattered them. They had a little bit too easy in the Euro 2004 qualifier, but we made them look that little bit more ordinary. And again, it's this thing, though, of, you know, if you look at any sort of draw that comes out, you think, okay, your top two group rivals, you draw with them away and you beat them at home, and then you just beat everybody else in the group and you're through. That's the, you know, the accepted wisdom of the whole thing. So a draw away wasn't a bad thing. And, you know, the problem with 
with with group games, you know, if you have ten or twelve qualifying games, you can always afford to have one of those performances where, yeah, you think that maybe you should have gotten more out of it, but it's okay because it was away from home. But that then is dependent on continuing to do what it is you're supposed to do in the later games, and that's often where Ireland have come up short. Is that they've done the good stuff early, you know, even in Kerr's first campaign there, the first three or four games, they did very very well in them, and then they kind of let it all go to waste by just not getting up to the standard that they would. But the beginning of that, that whole period of friendlies, I mean, regardless of the results, nil-nil against Brazil or whatever, you know, the performances were much, much better. And it really did look good then going into the, the autumn qualifiers there. Yeah, I think and the game that came after that then, for me anyway, was probably the the best performance of Brian Kerr's reign. This is a, a nil-nil draw against France in Paris. And I think one of, like, one of the things that I remember about the game was the amount of Ireland fans that were in the stadium that night. You know, it felt like we had taken over half of it. Um, and just, you know, the, the, this was probably like the, you know, the Celtic Tiger was roaring. Um, and, you know, the, the, the rugby team's results had started to improve. And now it was time for the, the, the soccer team to join them, you know, to, be, to perform at that level. And, you know, the, the higher echelons of international, uh, international sport. And, you know, I remember Damien Duff and Andy Reid just tearing the, the the Dutch team around, or the, sorry, the, the French team around the stadium. They did know how to react to these two quality ball players. And the feeling was that, you know, the, it was it was nil-nil, but it was a, a real, it was a more than a moral victory. You know, it was France had escaped uh, from the side of France with a point rather than Ireland had, uh, had, uh, had, had thrown away three points. So we had our, our two toughest games you know, against our two group rivals for qualification and come away without defeat. I kind of mirrored at that point the, the, the qualification for the 2002 World Cup where we had gone away to, to, to the Netherlands and to Portugal in our first two games and come away undefeated with two points. Um, so, Mark, I think the feeling was at that point that, you know, this is it now. As, as Phil has said, you know, you get what you can away from home against your top, your, your group rivals. You beat everyone else. And then uh, you you see what you can do against the, those two teams at home. We were looking good for quali- like the the qualifiers that we had been off to were off to a great start. Oh, absolutely! No, you know if you give Brian Kerr those results going into the, you know before um, the qualification campaign kicked off, oh he he would have taken immediately. I mean, yeah, that Paris performance was really you know. I suppose you have to counteract that by the French side as well, weren't they? They were coming off the Euro champs and they were a pretty dismal lot come the end of that. And I think they had a few suspensions in that Ireland game, if I remember rightly as well. And maybe they were there for the taking, Joe, on another day. Uh, you know, we did have an awful lot of chances. I think in the last 10, 15 minutes, we had one or two chances that on another day we could have nicked it. And But all in all, it was a good quality kind of road trip anyway and look we were set up nicely but we did have a few banana skins you know on the lower tier sides that we needed to face before France came to town again so and Switzerland but no very optimistic I was it's amazing to look back at that game Joe and to think that that was like you say that was probably the best game away to France we've had you know after that we had um, the playoff away to France a few years later when we didn't make it to South Africa but that game was amazing because you know those of us who've been on this planet slightly longer will remember going to France with your head in your hands I remember listening to games on the radio from the Parc des Princes as it was at the time with your head in your hands because all it was was the French were in our half the whole time and if you got out there by losing 1-0 or 2-0 you were happy enough with that but all of a sudden here we were 
square in their own backyard. And anybody who's been to a game in Paris when France are playing will know that the crowd gets on their back really quickly. And I love that as an away supporter, as, a, as, as somebody coming from the opposing country, to see how quickly they go, hang on a second, this is not the standard we demand. Now, I don't think Vieira played that game, and I think Zidane missed that game as well. So they were missing some of their better players. But this is France. They'd won the World Cup a few years previously. They'd won the Euros a few years previously. Does that, you know, this sort of post Clairefontaine generation, there was no shortage of good players to stick in there. You know, I remember a few years after that, I actually played against Robert Perez uh, when he'd retired. He was after, but he was just the, the gifts that that man had in a football pitch. I mean, you understand then why he was a pro, and I was just you know some bloke kicking around the lower divisions here. He's just outstanding. So when you see those kinds of players coming in, and yet I think it was was a Damien Duffer, Andy Reid, one of them said afterwards that you know we should have beaten them and that was great because to, you know we seem to set the level of ambition at exactly as I was saying there that you know you need two draws or, you know if you draw with your two group rivals away from home and yet Duff was there saying we should have beaten these lads and that mentality that Duff and uh, Robbie Keane both had they weren't scared of going to these places they weren't part of the moral victory crew that had gone through the 80s and 90s they were going no Jesus no we can win these games and that was great to see but unfortunately it was pretty much the high point of Brian Kerr's career. We didn't know that at the time, though. We thought, I think that, you know, this was, you know, this was a sign of, of what was to come. Um, and, you know, the, the the game itself was followed up by a, a, a qualifier, a home game against the, the Pharaohs. And ordinarily, you know, you, you know, a win against the Pharaohs doesn't you know, merit much. But Robbie Keane broke the international goal-scoring record that had stood for, had stood for quite some time, I think. You know, Niall Quinn... Um, had said it. Uh, I think with a, a a win or goal in the qualifier against uh, Cyprus for uh, for the uh, for the 2002 World Cup, and suddenly, um, at, but at very much the end of his career, and Robbie Keane scored his 22nd goal, and it, you know again it was part of this young you know generation coming through this you know this this skillful players these you know these world class players that were going to bring us to to the World Cup, and so. You know, we finished the the year with two two wins against the the lower ranked teams in the group and two draws against you know the our, our group rivals. And you know, it's probably it's exactly where we wanted to be. You know, um, so the new year two thousand and five started with a a, a, fr- a friendly win against Portugal, a one nil win, um, which was uh, as far as I remember, uh, an an anti racism. Uh, game. I think Portugal wore a, a black and white jersey uh, for that, and it was the the height of the the, the wristband phase. And uh, uh, Nike were selling black and white wristbands um, to to combat racism in in football. And we, after that, you know, uh, in March we were going to to Israel uh, to face the a team that we felt that we should be able to get a result in, you know, that, uh, and this was possibly the first misstep, if you like, in, in the qualifiers at that point. Um, it was a one-all draw. We were one nil up, but it, and conceded a late equaliser. And people started to think, you know, this feels familiar. You know, maybe the changes haven't, haven't gone all the way down to the, to the, to the roots, maybe of the, the, the team to the, to maybe that mentality hasn't changed. But it was still a point away from home. So, Mark, I mean, after that, I don't think that the mood had changed, but maybe a few questions had started to be asked. Yeah, I think a few questions were certainly being asked. Um, 
my abiding memory of that, I was I was working in Boston, and I had yeah, I had the day off anyway, so I went into the local bar in Boston, watching it, and myself and a couple of the guys were kind of very comfortable coming at halftime against Israel. Clinton scores a goal just before the interval. We never kicked on. We got too conservative. We went ultra defensive. We kind of just stood off Israel, and Israel, you know, they kept plugging away, but there was an awful lot of long range efforts. But then right at the end, Abba Soon, and I know the guy's name because there was an Israeli guy literally to my right screamed his name as soon as the equaliser went in. And I was kind of like, my head dropped at that stage. Uh, I was kind of thinking, oh, oh, we're in a bit of a spot of bother here anyway. It was just, it was just the lack of, the lack of, con- the lack of attacking nows from a cur, you know, when we're one up, could we get that second one just killed this game to bed? Because the crowd in Tel Aviv was quite vocal, as I remember rightly as well, and it was just, yeah, it was just that conservatism that we hoped that Brian Kerr wouldn't be when he was appointed back, uh, back when he was appointed as senior manager. It was just all those kind of conservatism, you know, defensive side of things that we didn't want to see from the Ireland team under Kerr coming really to come to haunt us again. Yeah, it kind of felt like we that. The the problem was was maybe now people were starting to see was that we weren't scoring that many goals. We weren't conceding, but we weren't scoring a lot. We we'd only scored uh, more than twice in a game twice at that point. When uh, we beat Cyprus three 0 and we'd beaten uh, in in the qualifier the previous September and we'd beaten um, we'd beaten Canada three 0 in a friendly uh, uh, a year earlier in October two thousand and three, but we'd only ever gotten like one or two goals and. You know, in a game like that, you kind of needed a second goal, and we never looked like scoring that second goal. Yeah, this, this is the thing that's always annoyed me about certain Republic of Ireland managers. Um, Jack wasn't really one of them because he didn't care. He just lumped the ball long all the time anyway. And if they score, they score. He played the numbers game, but there was nothing specific about it. But when Kerr scores in this game against Israel and then decides, you know, we're going to back off here. We're not going to try and get a second goal. Or if we do, we'll get it on the break. But we're content with 1-0 here. And that always drives me demented because we're not the team that has that sort of Germanic concentration in defence, right? Lads are going to slip. They're going to make a crazy tackle. They're going to go for a header they shouldn't go for. And we need the insurance. We need to play more like a Denmark where we just keep going. And again, this is why I know you're a big Manchester City fan, Joe. This is why I love to see Guardiola go, look, at they're not going to score if we have the ball in their half of the pitch. Now, you can't give it away. You can't be done with it either, you know. But if you can play the, the game in the opponent's half of the field, and especially against a team like Israel, because a team like Israel, again, if you're lacking, you know, this lightning quick speed, a Michael Owen kind of a player where they can just dump a ball over the top and all of a sudden it's in the back of the net. Israel never had a player like that. You know, they've had some good players, you know, some reasonably decent players in the Premier League, but they've never had a guy that you would go, oh, hang on a second, we don't want him on the ball, you know. And to, to, to go there with that conservative mindset, and I wonder if... With time and when, you know, that, that result against France was so good that Kerr started to sort of second guess himself and thought, you know, I really want to stay in this job. And rather than being bold the way he was with the underage teams, that he actually went the opposite direction. So what actually got him the job and being slightly bolder and slightly more offensive that actually went, no, no, I'll go the other direction here and this will work out. And it didn't because that, that, like, I remember huge alarm bells going off. I didn't actually see that game until later, but I remember listening to it and going, how can we only get 1-1 against these guys? What do we do? And then you see the shape of them in the video replay. I go, okay, now I know, you know, because they sat off so much. And any team, 
like Israel, you know, any team of competent footballers, if you let them come at you, when you're the Republic of Ireland with the defenders, the players we have, if you let them come at you for 45 minutes or an hour, they will find a way through. You know, that's just it. And you're playing a lottery then. It doesn't matter how good your goalkeeper is and that kind of thing. Somebody's going to get there in the end. We we can't play that kind of football. We can't be a Portugal back in the day who could just shut up shop. You know, the great Italian teams in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, who just, you wouldn't get a sniff of goal. You know, I think Ray Houghton was the most surprised man in the world when he scored against them in the World Cup in 1994 because they didn't concede, you know. So that wasn't us. And to try to play a game that isn't the Republic of Ireland style of play, keep it high you still had the good ball players to play in their half of the field, but by playing the, so the odds or playing the numbers game and saying, okay, we're leading 1 0 here, let's be conservative, that was ultimately, you know, it was the beginning of the end. And that thinking existed almost all the way to the end of Brian Kerr's career after that. Yeah. Um, one other thing just about the, the goal score about uh, Suwan is that um, he, he, he was uh, a Muslim, and to see, you know, the, the crowd, uh, to, the in a in the the Ramatgan Stadium, you know, cheering uh, a goal scored for Israel by uh, by a, a, a Muslim player was, was, you know, it's it's one of those one of those kind of strange things that stay that stay with you. Uh, and and uh, but you know, if we move on from that game, then you know the the feeling was okay. They still have to come here. We the, they have to come to Dublin and they have to 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 get a result. And the feeling was okay. We've been we've been strong at home up to that point uh, in the qualifiers. We we'd won the two games at home that we we like, you know expected to to win. We'd beaten, excuse me, we'd beaten Cyprus and we'd beaten the Faroes. Um, we already dispatched of Croatia and Portugal in friendlies, and would go on to beat uh, China before facing uh, Israel. And we went two 0 up at home, and then. It kind of all went wrong. Now, Robbie Kane picked up an injury, a shoulder injury, if I remember correctly, and had to be taken off. Um, and instead of the, the the obvious change, which was bringing on either Gary Darty or Stephen Elliott, a striker for a striker, uh, instead he elected to bring on Graham Kavanagh uh, and put him into centre midfield and push Damien Duff, who'd been destroying them. Uh, on the on the left wing, push him up front alongside Clinton Morrison, and move and uh, move Andy Reid out to the, to the left. And you know, I I mentioned the 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 two 0 loss against Switzerland earlier, as you know, when two unforced changes were made, instead when one was only really was needed. And I think he made the same mistake in this game. Uh, it was uh, a two 0 up. You know, we were in complete control, playing a you know it's just a straight four four two. But with the changes that he made, I think we kind of seeded some of the the momentum, you know. And again, again, I think Israel would have seen Robbie Keane going off and thinking, "Well, you know, that's their their most dangerous striker gone. They're not going to score. We can have a goal here." So, like Mark, what did you think of what happened after that? Okay, do I have to talk about it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was it was such a good start as well. I mean, and I think there was a few critics there of Kerr before that game, uh, before the return game with Israel in Lansdowne Road. It was very much, you know, um, backs against the wall. But it was a great start with Hart and Robbie scoring the goals. But again, you, you can't get to the fact of Tel Aviv and how 
the Israelis last minute equaliser that buoyed them up no end coming to Dublin as well. I mean, they went 2 0 down, but they still continued to play their football even before Robbie Keane had, a, had, re, uh, had withdrawn uh, from the game. I mean, the, the goals were sloppy. Uh, the, there's no other words for it, you know. They came, I think, within five to eight minutes of each other. It was just literally no organisation defensively. And they just held on for the two-all draw, really. I mean, there was a bit of play acting. I remember there was significant play acting from Israel, particularly in the second half, just to kill the rhythm and the tempo of the game. But we couldn't really get back into the attacking mindset again, where we were just far too conservative again. And you could see the vultures were kind of in the media box were probably uh, circling overhead on Cur at that stage. Yeah, I think that the goalkeeper, I think the Israeli goalkeeper, Dudu Oat, will go down in the, oh, in the history God, of yeah. Irish of Irish football. Um again I was on the, the North uh, the North Stand that, that day in Dublin and uh, I happened to just be listening to the to the commentary on a little radio player. So when Andy O'Brien was sent off, we all assumed that he had punched the referee. I'm sorry, had punched the, the goalkeeper and then I was one with the, my, my hands on my, up to my ears. Like, no, no, something's after happening. And after I told everyone what had happened, that uh, he had just turned around, but the goalkeeper had thrown himself to the ground like he'd been punched by Tyson in his prime. Um, the crowd turned and, you know, turned on the goalkeeper and turned on the referee. But that's something you can't control in a game. Like, people talk about luck and good luck and bad luck. You know, I think you get lucky in instances. You know, a, a star striker... We miss a goal from an open goal. I've seen Sergio Aguero miss open goals. You know, uh, uh, a goalkeeper will drop uh, will drop an easy uh, an easy catch. We've all seen it. Um, and then, or, you know, sometimes you get good luck. And I think you know Israel got good luck twice in this game. They got a, a, a header from just inside the area, which is the kind of freak goal that you just never see. And then they got a, a, a penalty awarded for nothing really, uh, but. Brian Kerr, the changes that he made, you know, it probably helped them with that with that luck a little bit. Um, so, like, Phil, did you think at that time that we still were going to qualify? Uh, no, because, you know, when, when that happens twice, you just go, no, this team doesn't have what it takes, you know, and, the, and again, the coach doesn't have what it takes. So, Graham Kavanagh, wonderful footballer, real solid player, really intelligent player, knows the game, knows what's expected of him and that kind of thing, but he's not Zico. You know, you're putting in a guy there and what you are, again, saying to Israel, you did it 1-0 up when you're away from home, what we have we hold. You're 2-0 up at home, Robbie Keane's gone off, and it's a weird one for Kerr, right, because Kerr was so intrinsically in twined with Damien Duff as a player and in terms of his development and of making him into the star player he was to become first for McCarthy and then for Kerr himself and it seemed to be this like overbelief, you know, that he knew Damien Duff and his skill that well that he thought that this guy's going to flourish anywhere. But Damien Duff never really worked as a striker. You know, if we put him up there playing off a big number, nine, never really worked for him. Stick him on the wing. You know, he was the most stereotypical old-fashioned winger that you've ever seen. Drop the shoulder, get by the man, get the ball in the box and leave it at that, you know. And if you want to put him on the right, let him cut inside and shoot, that worked as well. But again, that's a very old-fashioned style of wing play. So, so to bring on Kevin and then to put Duff up front, you're going, you know, okay, I know you love the guy and that kind of thing and you believe in him, but that's not what this game is crying out for here. You have these guys dead and buried. It's over. Now you're after losing your talismanic striker in Robbie Keane, right? Keep going after them. Keep doing the positive thing because, again... If you were playing in their half of the pitch, you know they're not they're not going to get these chances. They're not going to get headers inside the box. Uh, what was an absolute disgrace that day. But 
you kind of get what you deserve, right? That's the the awful thing and the jo- most joyous thing about football is in like over the course of 10 or 12 qualifiers, you will always get exactly what you deserve. It's like democracy that way. <laughs> and I always go back, when you, when you talk about teams of winners, right? I go back to two things. Michael Jordan was a fantastic winner, but the 2008 Boston Celtics basketball team, there's a guy called Kevin Garnett played in that team and you will never come across a bigger winner. And before that, te- that team even started the season, they've been one of the poorest teams the season before. Before, and then he transferred to the Celtics. And I said, "That's we're winning this. We're going to have these habits. He was re- a real Roy Keane type. And I was never convinced that that team was cast in, in that mold, in the Roy Keane, Kevin Garnett, Michael Jordan mold. You know, there was never a sense that there was one player who would step up and say, I am going to drag you through this game and we're going to defend this one or two goal lead against these fucking minnows who've no business on this pitch with us at all. You know, the fact that we can remember the names of some of those players today who scored against us is a fucking travesty in its own way because they just weren't good enough you know and yet here they were stopping Ireland going to the 2006 World Cup but yeah no for me at that point that was where it ended because again a bit like uh, when Staunton's side conceded five goals to Cyprus you're done you've told us who you are at that point you've told us who you are as a coach you've told us who you are as a player and you've told us who you are as a team and it's really really difficult to come back from such a disappointing home result as that one and that's what it was it was a massive disappointment because suddenly you know, instead of instead of battling it out with you know France and Switzerland for for first spot, we're kind of it looks like we're in a real fight with Italy or sorry with Israel for maybe third or fourth. Um, and you know, suddenly the the two home games against France and Switzerland didn't look as comfortable. Um, so yeah, so the the we went into the the summer break with a you know again a 2-0 win against the Faroe Islands and it's like every game against the Faroe Islands you win 2-0 and no one cares uh, <laughs> you know it, it, everyone says you know you went you win you beat Faroes 4-0 everyone says well of course it is Faroes you draw with them and then suddenly you know it's it's the worst result ever um it's the, these kind of games I always say you can't actually win them Faroe Islands San Marino and Dora you can't actually win the game you know you you go up and you, you score more goals than they do but everyone says so what you know it's you expected you do what you're expected to do but you know what joe if i can interrupt you there right the the mindset in that case should be something different right it shouldn't be enough to go in and beat a team like that so we tend to say that you know this is a results-based enterprise that we're involved in here in terms of football winning football matches and qualifiers and making it to tournaments right but in a situation like that you should be setting out to do something absolutely dominant against a team like the pharaohs because you're talking about a team who i think they barely had a couple of professional players that were in that side so the goal should be something different it shouldn't be just to beat them it should be to beat them in a certain way. And I've made this argument before, and I'm in a minority of one in making this argument, that for certain games like that, you know, it, when push comes to shove, if you feel the League of Ireland team, they should be good enough and hungry enough to beat the Pharaohs. Uh, you know, and certainly at that stage when, you know, you had Joe Gamble and George O'Callaghan and you had Jason Bourne and you had all these players, great players playing, Glenn Crow playing in the League of Ireland. You know, it, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility to see them beating them and beating them better than what our team of Premier League players did. So there's a different attitude needed there but I do think that um, that draw at home, that 2-2 draw at home to Israel, it actually really sort of let all the air out of the balloon that, that was blown up when we drew away to Switzerland and France and I really think that was always going to be com- difficult to come back from that. Yeah, just just on that, that win in the Faroes, it was nil nil at half time and it was two goals in the second half uh, that won it um, I think, you know, if we had gone, as you, I think 
Brian Kerr wasn't able to change his mindset. You know, the way we approached that game was the same way we approached the Israel game. That you know, we score, we'll hold on to that lead, and we'll we'll get whatever result we get. Um, maybe, as you say, a change in mentality was needed for that game. It was like, look, it's the Pharaohs. We can we can really you know put a a cricket score up against them, um, and we didn't. And we we just we won two 0 and finally we won two 0 but. Yeah, maybe maybe it was a missed opportunity to put a, to have a real make a statement. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say, and it just it just didn't happen. So after the summer break, you know, we're facing into suddenly um, kind of two really really make or break games against uh, against France and and Switzerland with an away game against Cyprus that we thought would be a gimme. Um, but first, before all that, you know, we had a, a friendly against uh, Italy at home. And we lost, and we lost two one, and we were two 0 down until Andy Reid scored. And all the games, all the goals, sorry, came in the first half. And suddenly, yeah, more questions have been asked. So, Mark, you know, did you think we could get a result against France? It was fifty fifty from my perspective. Um, it was just the way that was. Re- it was the hangover of the Israel results, the home and away, really did kind of cast a bit of doubt into my mind on how Ireland would literally get any results against France and particularly with France now their suspensions injuries seem to have eased as well likes of Zidane, Vieira, Makalele guys like that were now back in the fold so it looked a difficult proposition but the only thing I would have said leading into that game that the the squad and management seemed quite galvanised, particularly on the press conferences beforehand of that French game. It did look like a very united front within the Ireland group. So I was hoping for a big performance and maybe hoping that we might nick a result. But again, there was an awful lot of, you know, clouds of uncertainty from my perspective if we were going to get the result or not, to be honest. Yeah, Phil, in that game, I mean, I, I I was on change of scenery for me I was actually I was on the south terrace that night and I, I do remember at one point uh Pat the ball went out and Patrick Vieira came up came just took it at, at the sideline and I was quite close to the, the the front row and uh I just remember looking up I mean I'm 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 six foot and I just remember looking up at him and suddenly thinking I have whole new levels of respect for Ray <laughs> you know after after He's a big lad. confronting him in the, yeah he is a big man after that confrontation in the in the tunnel, I don't think I could have done it. Um, but we just that French team, you know, that's had only you know that we had faced, uh, you know, at the, at the start of the qualifiers that looked disorganized, that looks you know maybe a little shell shocked, that looked you know lacking in leadership. Suddenly came to Dublin and they played in Dublin the way we played in Paris. You know, they silenced the home crowd. Um, they played like they played some fantastic football, and then the winner, when it finally came from from Henri, didn't really surprise anyone. No, tremendous goal. But I think one of those, I always get you know, the, the what if, the sliding doors moments are always brilliant to look at in football. And I'm a firm believer if you look at things over time that you reap what you sow. And I, I honestly think, Joe, that we didn't lose that game that night in Dublin. We lost it when we drew in Paris. Because, like the rugby team, when you win in Paris, that sets down a marker. This is a, it's a game, it's a theatre of momentum, right? So if you have the momentum with you, then you will obliterate all before you. You know, when we've got 
gone on runs like that before. You know, like the game against Italy, I think we hadn't lost for probably over a year at that point uh, between the Nigeria game. And maybe the only other loss that we'd had under care was away to the Swiss in Basel. So it really turned things around then. But what was missing was, you know, the cherry on top would have been a victory away to, to France in Paris. And that, again, that will have you grow another three inches until Roy Keane is, you know, the same height as Patrick Vieira when you saw him collecting the ball down there. But it, it didn't happen. And when you're so close, and I'd say the same thing again a few years later when we played them in the two-legged playoff, and we, you know, we gave them a good old chasing in Dublin, but we didn't do the job. We didn't finish it there and then, you know. And that meant then that when we had to go back to Paris, we didn't have that momentum that we really needed in front of one of the most hostile crowds in in European football. And that was the the difficulty we're seeing that. We were good enough. We knew we were good enough. It wasn't. It was only a few months, you know, since we proved that we were good enough to go into their backyard, albeit a slightly weakened France. But we could not just go in there and live with them, but to go over there and give them a bit of a lesson. But then they came back, and again, it's just it's the class of players like Thierry Henry, like Zidane, like Vieira. You know, they're just such outstanding footballers that. They will never fail to solve the same puzzle twice, right? You can find another way to beat them right enough, but if you go out in the same way and try to do the same as you as you did before, they will beat you. They will find a way because that's just that's what makes them world class players. We don't have the number of world class players that we that they do. We don't have the history. We don't have that kind of thing. So we have to create our own momentum. And we lost the opportunity to do that in Paris, and that really bit us in the ass then when we played them in Dublin. Yeah, and I I think just. Uh... Another thing that maybe uh, maybe we another reason why we might have lost that game was that you know the squad you know for all the talk that Brian Kerr was going to bring through you know the promising youth players that he was going to promote the League of Ireland he hadn't really brought through a lot of players and you know if you look at the lineup uh, against France that night it's Shea Gavin, Richard Dunn, Steve Carr, John O'Shea, Kenny Gunningham, Andy Reid, Kevin Caban, Damien Duff, Robbie Keane, Roy Keane, and Clinton Morrison. The only player in that in that squad. That's or sorry, that's starting eleven that Brian Kerr gave his debut to is Andy Reid. Everyone else was uh, was played under McCarthy. I know John O'Shea and Clinton Morrison came in at the, the end of his reign, but they were still, you know, yeah. this was three years into the into the, the the Brian Kerr era, and you know, the the team had become more organised, but it's still, you know, was he was he rearranging the deck chairs a little bit? Um, you know, even if you look at the the, the list of players that he did give debuts to. Um, you know, there's there's Alan Quinn, Alan Lee, Joe Murphy, Andy Reid, John Thompson, Paddy Kenny, Liam Miller, Jonathan Douglas, Jason Byrne, Martin Rollins, Clive Clark, Aidan McGeady, Michael Doyle, Jonathan Mackin, probably the most controversial uh, cap, and Stephen Elliott. You know, there's not a lot of quality there. And it kind of made me think that the, the FAI you know, maybe missed a trick after the, the World Cup in USA in 1994 by not investing in, in, in the youth setup. And the, the players that we saw that, that blossomed in Japan in 2002, you know, that's, that's Robbie Keane, you know, he saw, he watched Italian 90, he watched USA in 94, and he went down and started kicking a football around. And Damien Duff did, and Richard Dunn did, and I did, but, you know, I didn't go on to play international football. But the, the, the gap in those uh, eight years between 1994 and 2002, you know, the player, you know, the, the kids that were 10 years old, you know, in... in uh, in 1996, in 1998, they didn't have that kind of inspiration. And perhaps if they, you know, if there had been more investment, that when we came to play uh, France in 2005, there might have been someone we could have brought on. There might have been, you know, maybe a, a slightly a, a different player, an intelligent player that we, we just didn't really seem to have at that time. And and 
maybe we don't really produce. That's that's another maybe that's you know that's another question for another part of the discussion. But I think it's a valid point, Joe. When you think about how the transition is managed, right? So, I mean, the look, the FAI has been the luckiest organisation in the world for the most part because everything that happens happens despite it and not because of it a lot of the time. So, the players that we based uh, our great teams the past on in the six, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties were mostly sort of street footballers from the cities and the odd lad from down the country. You know, the John Gileses, uh, Eamon Dunphy, David O'Leary, Liam Brady. These lads grew up playing football on the street. They had to be small. They had to be quick. They had to be creative. You know running in and out between cars and trying not to break windows, you know? And that created a very specific kind of player. But then when the game changed and Ireland started to qualify for tournaments, that kind of thing, they never really managed to sort of collect that. Again, Robbie Keane became a great player because he was Robbie Keane and he was so dedicated. But, you know, no, I don't think anybody at the FAI ever took him aside and said, let's make this young player to a world-class striker. Or did the same with Richard Dorn or Damien Duff. They they honed their own skills. So we've never had, like, a Lillishaw. We've never had a Claire Fontaine until very recently. We've never had that sort of level of organisation. It was very much a sort of a haphazard thing. Get into a good team. And we all know the clubs in Dublin and around the country that you go to if you are, have ambitions as a footballer, you know. But it's only really now. And we've wasted generations of players who could have been exactly the kind of player that you were talking about because we needed, we've, uh, you know, we've fallen off now. We used to, our players used to play when I was growing up. They would play for Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool. They would play for Aston Villa. They'd play for big clubs. And now they play for Newcastle and they play for Wigan and they play for whoever. You know, they, they just don't, they can't seem to break into the big teams anymore. You know, when was the last time we had a big Irish player linked to a, a big money move abroad the way when Robbie Keane went to Inter? You know, that just doesn't happen because we don't produce that standard of player. Now, that said, we can get through that by utilising the players we have in a different way, which Stephen Kenny is most likely going to do. But again, you know, we need to, to see how, where are these players coming from and how do we turn them into these world beaters? Because again, Andy Reid was a superb footballer. Wes Hoolan, superb footballer. Paul McGraw, a wonderful, wonderful player. You know, th- these guys are out there and we only need to find 11 of them and we can be back up there challenging the best of the world again. But it's where we find them and what we do to nurture them that's going to be the important discussion, maybe even more so than actual results in the coming years. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's you know that's that's very true, and you know it's I think the 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 investment uh, in the the youth setup uh, is starting to bear fruit. You know, we, we've seen some very impressive results in the under seventeen and under nineteen setup in the last few years, and you know it's it's just a shame that well because of the current ongoing climate, uh, the under seventeens aren't going to or weren't able to play the the elite round of their qualifiers, and the 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 entire tournament itself this summer has actually has been cancelled. And you know the you know will if the 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 qualifying series for for next uh, next year's tournament, um, which is currently scheduled for the end of October, to see if that does go ahead, we we honestly don't know. Um, you know, so the after the loss against uh, against France, and we, suddenly now we've you know we've lost two game two home games in a row, which you know which hasn't happened. Um, well, at least first of all, we hadn't lost two games in a row since uh, since McCarthy's last two games against Russia and Switzerland. And you know the the atmosphere around the team was negative. You know the the two two throwing away a two 0 lead at home against Israel. Um, you know, uh, it was kind of still on people's minds, and you know, uh, uh, it was actually uh, I was when I was researching for it. You know, it was it was actually the first time that we had scored twice against a lower ranked side at home and not gone on to win, and and it just you know it all added up. And then you know we've but but we have a an away game against Cyprus before we face the Swiss, and 
Cyprus, you know, we, we these are the, this is the kind of thing that we dispatch. You know, we'd beaten them 3-0 at home uh, only a year earlier in September. Um, okay, you know, there's there's a... And we could view it as a, this game, this qualifier, as a build-up to the real last, to the, to the Switzerland game. Um, and we won it up really early with the goal from Stephen Elliott. And again, we just sat back and sat back and sat back. And we conceded a penalty. And I remember as, you know, watching the the Swiss player put the ball down on the ground and, then, you know, Shea Gibbon on the line. And I remember thinking, I don't think I've ever seen Shea Gibbon save a penalty. And he saves it. But that's how close we came to not getting three points in Cyprus. So, Mark, you know, we're going into the last game now against Switzerland. Can we do it? Well, all that doubt had kind of led into it. Um yeah, it was a year preferably cup final as well, guys, wasn't it? I mean, we knew what we needed to do, get uh, get uh, get the result. But again, there was an awful lot of media, you know, negative negativity going on, and most of it was well merited, really, to be honest. Um, again, Switzerland, you know, we, we, uh, when have we last beaten Switzerland? To be perfectly honest, I mean, it's been quite a while. Um, so, I mean, my confidence was probably. Yeah, 40, 60 of getting a result, to be honest. Uh, I was hoping for a good performance again, but th- there was an awful lot of, you know, the French performance was not too bad, guys. I mean, for 70 minutes, it was, they worked extremely hard. Now, granted, there was pressure a few chances created, but at least there was a bit of, you know, the team looked together, you know, the work rate was there. But um, I was just hoping maybe for a set piece or something like that that could get us over the line here. But again, confidence wouldn't be been soaring here, Joe. Yeah. And, Again, you know, the, 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 the inability to score was starting to look, well, um, was kind of starting to become, you know, forward in, in people's minds, you know. We'd scored, two, or, yeah, we had scored two against Israel and we'd scored two against the Pharaohs, but we'd only scored once against Italy and lost. We hadn't scored against France. We'd only scored one against Cyprus and we needed to score and we needed to get a win against Switzerland. And not only that, like... Uh, Switzerland just needed a draw to go to the playoffs. So you kind of, every football fan watched that game knew exactly what Switzerland were going to do. They weren't going to come behind the halfway line. And we had to go there and break them down and we had to score and we had to and this is what's so annoying about that game as well is that you know when you know that that's what you have to do or your opponent knows that, that that's what you have to do you have to show them something different so you can't go in there you can't play them the way you did when you played them away from home you need to go in there and say okay you know what can we do what can we change it who can we put in there who have we got in the bench who have we got who wasn't even in the squad for all these qualifiers who they're not going to know and we can put in there and it just I don't know. I just recall that game and thinking, you know, the, the worst thing that can happen with a game like that is when it goes exactly like you expect. I think most of us expected that Switzerland were there for a nil-nil draw and that, you know, Ireland were going to be frustrated because they lacked that sort of creative spark. And that, to me, is when it's up to a coach to find something different, to try something off the wall. You know, to, it, like if it happens to be putting the centre half up front or whatever it happens to be, just do something to change the game. Because, you know, we talk a lot about the media negativity in Ireland. And when the media turns, it's very, very hard because the fans aren't too far after them. But I've never seen uh, a, 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 the media or the fans turn on a manager who was winning games. 
you know and yeah. that was what you know especially important games if you deliver the important games the rest is going to take care of itself and i think somehow Kerr had this such a strong belief in his organization that he never looked outside to see what was lacking you know it's very very difficult as the international manager and my god i've spoken to enough of them over the years Lars lagerbeck now who's currently in charge in norway is one of those guys who he has a system of playing and it, it, that gets him, you know, he is qualified with Nigeria for the World Cup. He made Iceland what they are today and what Eric Hamrian is currently destroying for the most part. Uh, he brought them to the World Cup and the Euros for the first time. He knows. And he just gets in there and he does it. And he makes no apologies for the way he does it. It's quite basic, but they love it in Norway because that's what they've loved all their lives. Kerr was a different kettle of fish. It, it, like, it seemed to me that he built this platform. You know, he did this wonderful job in terms of building this fantastic organization. But what was lacking was that sort of methodical creativity and by that I mean creating six, seven, eight, nine chances a game and scoring three or four of them and we never got to that point in the team that he was trying to build and I don't know if he was capable of doing that either because it just seemed to me to be uh, get the ball to the byline, get the ball into the box, nick a set piece, that kind of thing, because we were never prolific scorers. And that would suggest on the offensive side, if you look at West Germany or Germany for the last 10 or 15 years, the goals they score, the things that sticks out about them is they're so different. So you can have a corner, uh, as Ireland did against them in, in Dublin a few years ago, and Marco Royce cleared the corner and then he scored about six or nine, I think it was nine seconds later or something like that, he was up the other end scoring. And in that game that they hammered Ireland in, they scored so many different kinds of goals. And yet... We were always scoring the same, you know, that Shane Long goal that we scored against, a long ball, one bounce, crack back of the net, you know. We've never managed to have a coach who was able to to create. And I think that's what might be what we see with Stephen Kenny in the end, that he might do what Brian Kerr, you know, he might come from the League of Ireland to do what Brian Kerr couldn't do. And that is to have a kind of attacking play, because that's one of the things that stuck out about Dundalk, both in Europe and in the League of Ireland, was that they were capable of scoring many different kinds of goals. So it wasn't just one single tactic the way it was under, under Jack Charlton or under Brian Kerr, you know, where you just get the ball in the box and hope for the best. But it might actually be a more sort of thought out offense that we're going to look at in the next little while. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, I was in uh, the same seat I had been for the for the French game on the South Terrace that night, and uh, Ireland were playing into the into the, the goal in front of me, and we just didn't look like scoring. And I think, like I had, I, I started asking questions after the Israel game, after the two two game. I think the Cyprus game was really was the straw that broke the camel's back, and I just, for the first time, I just didn't care about the Ireland team in that, and just that Swiss game was nearly killed me you know I, we didn't look like scoring we didn't look like creating and I think the 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 DNA conservatism of Brian Kerr uh, was was I don't know it was finally revealed I think in it's full in that game you know needing a goal at home to score he took off Robbie Keane and Clinton Morrison and brought on Stephen Elliott and Gary Doherty and you're just thinking, you we're playing four four two and it's not working. You're taking off your best goal scorer for some for two average, let's be honest, uh, club strikers, and you're still playing four four two. We could have played and needing a win and taking off two goal scorers, it just it didn't make any sense. And it, like the silence at the end of the game was just I think the crowd had just accepted it, you know. It was over, now. Um, so, uh, Mark, uh, how did you feel after that? Yeah, it was uh, pretty devastating. Maybe as a certain player on that squad said, were we a bit too nice? Um, to be fair, 
Um, but again, the substitutions that he's uh, that you have alluded to here, Joe. I mean, it really smacked of a manager with no more uh, no more to give. Really, once you're holding off your two best striking attacking options, trying to get a win at home. Uh, enough said. I think the game was up for Brian Curry at that stage, and maybe it was maybe a blessing in disguise. We didn't qualify. Yeah. And- well, when you look back to when we played the Dutch to qualify for uh, the World Cup in 2002, and towards the end of that game, they were still trying to win it. So they had every Dutch striker of the last 10 years, Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank, everybody was on the pitch, but they were still trying to win the game, and we held on to win. And I would much rather die with my boots on as a coach than take off two strikers and put on two strikers. You know, make the shit... Again, when you get together for the... You know, you might have a few days beforehand before a big game like that to prepare, right? I'd say, look at lads, if this is not working after 50 minutes, we're going to go to a four-three-three, and you prepare the lads for that because you know they are professionals at the end of the day theoretically at least they should understand what you're trying to do or you know you might make it into a, like um, a four-two-three. it doesn't matter but as long as switzerland are, are faced with something different that they haven't seen before because it just that difference of having a guy 10 meters if, if from his starting position that forces them to do something different they either have to go to him or they have to leave the space and you know we never really got beyond that we never had that tactical flexibility where we were capable I know Mick played 3-5-2 at times and you know we did change it up a little bit but there was never that ability to um to change things in the course of a game you know we never had you know the idea of a false nine in Ireland or anything else like that now I mean you can talk a whole lot of smack about um, tactics and that kind of thing and sometimes at the end of the day it just comes down to who wants it more right but there's a lot to be said for you know for doing what Russia did to Damien Duff in that game and just cancelling him out you know but if you can't you know you need to react this is a chess match and every football match is not you know it's not just 190 minutes it could be you know 10-15 minutes it could be 20 minutes I remember seeing us playing against Austria, dominating them and then getting hammered because, you know, the game just changed. They made a tactical switch and that was it. And we were never really capable of doing that. We went out there and said, this is who we are. And this is, you know, we believe in this to get us to where we need to go. And it wasn't enough. And in this case, it wasn't even enough for third place in the group. Fucking Israel came ahead of us, you know. And that, to me, is the is the tragedy of it because it was the end of Roy Keane as an international player. This campaign, uh, there were certain other players who were never going to be the same again. But I think we lost. The, the golden generation, you know, Damien Duff, Robbie Keane, you know, th- their best years were kind of given to the team when they were banging their heads off a brick wall and still not making it through. And that's really, really sad when you think of the potential that they showed in 2002. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that game was uh, was played on the 12th of October 2005 and less than a, less than a week later on the 18th, uh, the FNI announced that uh, Brian Kerr's contract would not be renewed. Um and uh, I think, like, the long-term effects of that, you know, that, I mean, there was a long tail to that, to, to that qualifier, to that, to his reign. And it, it took us, you know, I think it took us until the appointment of, of Trapattoni before we started to recover from it. Now, you know, if you look at some of the stats, you know, he didn't do too badly. You know, he still has, you know, the highest uh, win percentage of, mm-hmm. of any manager. He only lost two competitive games, but, you know, it's what led to, excuse me, it's what led to, to his, his not quite to, to, to fame to qualify for one tournament. And, you know, it was a, you know, maybe not the final nail, but, you know, the second last nail in the coffin for, for his second tournament. Um, I think if we can go back to when he was appointed, you know, uh, John Delaney, um, who, you know, ca- cast a long shadow in, in Irish international football, 
the the story came out that maybe Brian Kerr was not his favorite appointment. You know, the opinion was that he wanted um, he wanted Brian Robson, but you know, the, the Kerr was eventually chosen. And uh, you know, a year before the end of of Brian Kerr's reign, we uh, there was a friendly against Croatia and a, a red card protest uh, took place at the game against Delaney being in, announced as the interim CEO of the FAI, and you know when he was finally announced as um, as CEO of the, the Football Association, you know, one of his, his first acts was to decide that, you know, Brian Kerr was not his man and he would not have his man in charge of his team. Um, so then, well, he decided that his man would be in charge of his, t- of his team and his man was Steve Staunton. And we're going to talk about that next week. I'd like to thank uh, Philip for joining us. Uh, he joined on very short notice. Um, but we, we knew we could count on him. Mark from Hawkeye Sidekick. Um, we'll be back next week to talk about Steve Staunton as Ireland International Manager. Thank you and good night.